Hello, and welcome to the second edition of the Janto podcast. I'm Ken Owen, and I'm joined today by Michael Hatton. Hello, Ken. Roy Rogers. Hello, Ken. And Eric Hirschthal. Hey, Ken. Today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the American Revolution. And we're going to be picking up from some of the discussion that you may have seen on our blog about the recent McNeil Center conference called the American Revolution Reborn. Um, both Michael and Eric have posted their own thoughts on the conference, and you can also find on our website Michael's Storify of the different tweets that were published about the conference. I wanted to pick up today particularly on one issue that arose from the discussion, which was how we should periodise the American Revolution. If we think not just about the McNeil Centre Conference, but also the recently published Oxford Handbook of the American Revolution, we might notice that what people consider to be the American Revolution has expanded greatly over the last few years. And yet, in some ways, that takes away from the events that we might traditionally think of as being at the centre of the American Revolution. So, as a first question, when do we think the American Revolution takes place. And Michael, perhaps you'd like to start us off on that one. Yes, thank you, Ken. I've written about this recently for the blog, and instead of giving you a bracketing of two dates, I think I'd like to just mention my broader concerns regarding periodization in general. At the McNeil Conference, the vast majority of the panelists and the attendees uh, seem to favor expanding the periodization of the revolution. You can probably tell from what I've written recently that I tend to favor a more narrow form of periodization. And that's because I think that by elongating the periodization to where we're talking about the American Revolution in, say, the 1820s, we risk losing the eventness of the revolution, or the understanding of the revolution as an event, which I would suggest actually is how people on the ground would have experienced it as an immediate, even localized event as opposed to experiencing it in the mid-1770s as the beginning of some long-term Atlantic or global process. And so to avoid that trap, I think we have to be clear about whether we're talking about the revolution itself or the effects or aftermath of the revolution. Yeah, I mean, I generally agree with Michael that I think that if you're, that you're talking about the American Revolution, you should try to bracket it, maybe with beginning with sort of uh, the Stamp Act crisis and ending sort of with the Confederation period uh, as sort of the era of the American Revolution. But the real question, though, it really has to be what sort of unit of analysis you're using. If you're talking about the American Revolution as an event itself, then I think a relatively narrow chronological frame is appropriate. But if you're talking, say, about the age of democratic revolution and you want to compare the American Revolution to, say, the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution, or as one paper from the conference does, taken into the revolutions in Latin America in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, then you've got to sort of play with chronology much more than if you're trying to, to sort of just talk about the American context itself. Yes, uh, just to pick up uh, as the finer speak on this point, I would say, um, uh, just to echo um, Roy's points exactly, which is to say, if we are going to take um, an Atlantic perspective and, and see the American Revolution in conversation with many of these 
um, revolutions happening beyond uh, British North America's colonies, it's it's essential. Um, as Caitlin Fitz talked about, uh, seeing the the re revolutionary ideology actually affect and sort of spill over to the Latin Americas that. Um, you know, turns the, the, you know, Atlantic Revolution, so to speak, of which the American is just a part of that, uh, which goes well into the 1820s. And just one other uh, second point, I recently read um, the, a forthcoming collection of uh, scholarly essays put together by David Brunsman and David Silverman by Rutledge of recent, um, it's coming up by Rutledge at the end of the summer, it's meant for college readers, and one essay, one essay uh, by Colin Calloway dealt with the, um, uh, not an Atlantic perspective, but the um, the Native American tribe, the Shawnee tribe in particular, and the fighting with uh, the Shawnees who were drawn into the war didn't end um, either in 1783 or even 1787, but lasted all the way until um, 1795, uh, and if that is on the one hand, a, a product of the formal war between America, the, the colonists, and Britain, um, but then swept up other other parts of people like the Native Americans, then again, uh, the case for a more expansive chronology seems necessary. It seems to me from the discussion, though, that we're thinking of the American Revolution as something that's very different from the world, whether that be the Atlantic world or a transnational world, in the Age of Revolutions. And that's something that I wasn't quite sure from what I read about the conference, although I didn't attend. One of the questions that didn't seem to be particularly resolved to me was what remained American about the American Revolution if we kept looking very much at these transnational or global perspectives. It's a question that I'm particularly interested in is if the Atlantic world is so important in 18th century America, why do we get such a different understanding of events in America between the 1760s and the 1780s compared to anywhere else in the world? What do you think about that question? I would say um, in terms of the, uh, what, Atlantic, what makes you know, the American Revolution an American one as opposed to an Atlantic one, um, the same argument that's made broadly about Atlantic history, which is to say that by studying it in comparison, you actually highlight uh, what, or not, I shouldn't even say comparison, even, even that's too simplistic, but in conversation with um, very much uh, these other Atlantic, what we today call, you know, Atlantic um, sort of zone spheres, whether it's Haiti or, or the, broadly speaking, France uh, or the Spanish Americas, um, it's precisely because they were in conversation at the time that they often had to articulate, uh, the American colonists did, what made their revolution, what made, you know, American um, republicanism or the American idea of republicanism in 1787 different from uh, what, what it was becoming or what it appeared to be coming in Haiti by 1789 and certainly 1791. Right. I find that a very interesting take. I think that arguing that a comparative or conversational approach actually allows you to get at what is distinct about the American Revolution is one of the more persuasive arguments for me personally, for the need for broader context. I think too often those arguments come off as either anti-nationalist arguments or simply arguing that we need broader contexts for their own sake. My concern, however, is that having attended the conference and taken part in discussions that arose from it, was the propensity to 
conflate the American Revolution with the Age of Revolution. And that tends to go even further to the point where the American Revolution gets subsumed into that broader age of democratic or Atlantic revolutions. And that's not to say that we should treat the American Revolution as an isolated event. But even placing the revolution in its Atlantic or global context, I think, still requires, if not more so, that we not lose sight of it as an event. Yes, because that's the question I'd like to put to Eric, which is that the comparative points that you've put towards the discussion here are Haiti and France and Spain, and yet all of these very much follow on from the American Revolution. We're not comparing 1770s America to 1770s elsewhere in the Atlantic or the American world. We're looking at very similar events in terms of overthrowing governments, but not necessarily similar contexts in terms of how things are playing out right at the time. And that's what I'm not quite convinced that anything beyond a comparative approach can really answer for us. But I'd be interested to hear you say more on that. There's definitely problems, and I'm not going to pretend to have answers to all of them. But I, I would say that um, insofar as the, as the revolution is more than simply a war, and once the dust settles, uh, the, the real, in, in my even non-Atlantic approach, I would argue that, that, that the revolution has to continue at, at the very least to 1787, you know, which is to say the drafting of the second constitution, because it's only once the war ends after 1783 that you see the implementation of what this, of what this war seemed to be about. Um, and then if you continue, as I would argue, even beyond 1783 and not, not much longer to 1791, you know, now, putting this, this new government that was written in the, conver- um, in the Constitution into practice, um, it's still, for example, Haiti, you know, is it, that is exactly when Haiti and the French Revolution, 1789 and 1791, begins to happen. And it's still very much a part of the 18th century world. But um, it, it's, it's in putting this new government uh, based on this revolutionary ideas into practice that they're simultaneously responding to the experience of the internal war itself but also defining themselves against what seems to be the increasingly radicalism of that, uh, the increasing radicalism that their revolution seemed to be about. Um, so I guess that, you know, even a more smaller Atlantic per, uh, perspective, one that even ends in the 1790s, uh, it still requires you to, to take, um, you know, uh, to, to take these Atlantic, uh, sorry, the, the, uh, requires you to take the revolutionary leader's reaction to these other Atlantic re- revolutions into account. Yeah, I, th- I think that the problem that we have with the Atlantic perspective, at least I have with the Atlantic perspective, is not so much that the value, there's an obvious value to be gained from the sort of things that Caitlin Fitz is doing or bringing Haiti or bringing the French Revolution into conversation with the American Revolution. But I think sometimes we have a, we have a lack of an understanding of the American Revolution within the entirety of all 13 colonies that eventually became the United States, that we often have a localized, very particular perspective from New England or from New York or from the South, and we don't always do a very good job of finding commonalities, particularly now that we're moving beyond republicanism and beyond liberalism, within the experience of the American Revolution within what became the United States. And I think until we get 
a better post-Republican synthesis sense of what the American Revolution meant from, say, the 1770s to 1790, we won't really be able to have as productive a conversation with the other revolutions in the Atlantic world in this time. Because there's a much deeper question of what actually is American identity in this period compared to, say, the identity of the French revolutionaries. I think so. And I also think that we tend to sort of focus on, in the narratives that, that we present, you know, one particular aspect, be it the, the war through in the north, then the war moving into the south, and then maybe you know an I, a sort of ideological print culture perspective. And we haven't done, I think, necessarily a very good job of maybe bringing these disparate elements into conversation with each other. I think we lack a post-Balin, post-Wood synthesis to work from that would allow us to bring the American Revolution into conversation with the French, Haitian, Latin American. Yeah, I mean, speaking personally, I think there's an obvious solution to this, which is forget about New England, forget about the South. Why not just concentrate on Pennsylvania? Yeah, that explains all, ev- ev- everything that we need to about the revolution. Um, it's, it's New York. <laughs> as a historian of Virginia and Maryland, I, I take personal offense to that. <laughs> Virginia and Maryland are the definitive experiences. One of the things that certainly I've noticed about the discussion is that we've mentioned ideology, we've mentioned the way that leaders react to different events. We've looked at the establishment of governmental institutions. We haven't really talked an awful lot about what motivated people to rebel in the first place. It seems that republicanism has such a hold on the way that we think, whether we're looking at republicanism questions or reacting against them, that we're still very much looking at the power of ideas and not looking at the power of individual people um, in the revolution and how they experienced the revolution. I think that might be something that's worth looking at, at least in a political sense. You know, clearly we know a lot about the revolution as a social movement now, but to put that back into what that means for people's political life, I think will be a very productive turn of historical scholarship. Yeah, I think that's right, Ken. We have an understanding of the revolution as a social event and as both an intellectual and political event in my recent blog pieces I've called for developing an understanding of the revolution as a cultural event and on the ground cultural event. So how did colonial culture, particularly political culture, create a situation which made it possible for resistance to turn into rebellion? And in turn, how, how was that culture affected by the political experience of independence and state making and the visceral individual experience of the war? The trend at the conference was to expand the periodization, but it was almost always to expand it forward. And that is because historians, I think, are still more concerned uh, with the results of the revolution rather than its causes, and that's for many reasons. But if you want to answer the kinds of questions that Ken and I are posing, expanding the periodization backwards is necessary. And in doing so, you don't have to argue that the revolution began in, say, 1765, you just need to acknowledge that if you start looking at the revolution in 1776, you're going to be missing a huge piece of the puzzle that is the -the on-the-ground revolutionary political experience. Uh, The only um, point that I would add, uh, and that is, I I think, one, one of the strengths of the conference, at least the first day that I got to attend was the focus on neutrals, uh, this sort of large swath of people whose 
weren't, uh, you wouldn't quite call them committed patriots and certainly not loyalists either. Um, and, uh, you know, for better and worse, on the one hand, it doesn't capture the political ideology these disaffected people might have. But the papers that did focus on it uh, did capture the very human dimension of the war, which is to say that many people were forced to uh, take a position that they might not have had, uh, um, you know, fervent views about out of fear, out of intimidation. Um, and I think those papers actually did capture some of this, uh, you know, got us away from the, uh, you know, from the pristine ideology of the founders and got us a little bit more towards the day to day wartime decision making uh, that 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 um, led people to sort of support one cause versus the other. Um, I think I, I like both of what Michael and Eric have said, and I want to add one thing. Um, at the uh, Institute Conference, which I guess was a week and a half ago by the time, or two weeks by the time this will be on the blog, uh, there was a very interesting panel on the legacy of Charles Beard, uh, which one of our fellow Juntoists, uh, Tom, was on, and uh, Woody Holton uh, gave a presentation uh, that very much did, I think, good a job of good job of, per, of synthesizing both of his uh, books, uh, his Force Founders book and his Unruly Origins book, and I think. And he also has a book forthcoming on the American Revolution, I think, in 2013, 2014. And I think that com- a neo-progressive synthesis may come towards some of what uh, some of these questions that we're asking about getting beyond republicanism and into sort of the motivations of common people. I wanted to ask a more provocative question, building on what Eric just said which is that if we're looking at neutrality as a means of getting into the lived experience of the war and the revolutionary ideology, doesn't that suggest that we need a contraction of the periodization of the revolution somewhat? That the term neutral really only makes sense in a very specific period, but nationally it only makes sense between about 1774 and about 1783, and even then, on a local level, it's probably even shorter periods in different localities. So, as a deliberately provocative suggestion, playing devil's advocate, you know, how different does the revolution look if we only start it with that real anger that we see in the reaction to the Tea Act in 1773 and stop it once hostilities have, ce- um, have ceased? What, what I would suggest in response is uh, simply that if the revolution is about an, an, an evolving ideology that continues to evolve even after the, the peace treaty with Britain is signed in 1783, uh, the decision-making of people, uh, you know, um, if that ideology is, continues, as I would argue, to be molded by Atlantic events, and that's in, in many ways Americans... Uh, who are claiming the mantle of the revolution uh, are, are reacting against what's happening in France at the end, uh, what's happening in France and Haiti? Uh, then, then very, then the people who are sort of ambivalent about the whole cause uh, are simply responding to an ideology that is also being uh, that is also being shaped by by, by Atlantic events. Um, so, in other words, those local perspectives. And, and I would also add that just having studied um, uh, revolts and 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 having. Um, around this around this period, it's 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 very clear that the, the the newspapers, the stuff that that locals have access to, is very much engaged with what's going on with the outside world. Um, and when Republican ideas are discussed, which is often, it's often in conversation with with uh, with the revolutions that are happening again, whether it be in Latin America or France or Haiti and everywhere else.
Yeah, I think this is a good example of why periodization is important. Anytime you change the periodization, whether it's on the front or the back end, it significantly changes your understanding of the nature of the revolution. I've argued for a more narrow form of periodization, but I'm loath to reduce the revolution to either the war or some kind of ideological arc. If you want to get at the lived experience or the political experience, then you have to look beyond the war back to the 1760s. Like I said before, the way a person is reacting to or engaging with their wartime experience or the politics of the event. That's being shaped by their experiences in the decade prior to the onset of the war. Two of the things that struck me at the conference was that, one, there was no attempt at consensus uh, regarding periodization, and two, there actually seemed to be a real antipathy regarding periodization. Most of the participants didn't seem to think it was necessary to more clearly define what it was we were all spending three days talking about. And I can only reiterate my point that uh, periodization is fundamental to how we approach and understand the revolution. I agree entirely, and I think that that sudden change in the forms of government that we see that clearly brews in the 1760s but takes place in the 1770s is really important. I mean, one of the reasons I framed that last question as I did was just to think how different does a revolution look if we don't look at the Constitution as the capstone to the revolution, if we look at the Constitution as separate, as responding to a different set of debates. Well, I think that what this really hammers to me is actually the importance of the 1780s. And I think one of the... And if we're going to use neutrality and loyalism and these questions of sort of identity and citizenship that begin to emerge after 1774 into 1775 and 1776, we really do have to do both halves of the 1780s. We have to talk about the end of the war and perhaps not using the Constitution, but using sort of a more organic endpoint. And one of the things I liked about Kimberly Nath's paper about the Shoemaker family is that if you're going to talk about neutrals, you have to talk about what happens to them after the war ends. Because that, because I think this is a huge place for more work. I think we've gotten a lot of good work uh, on African Americans, uh, uh, particularly that sided with the British on this question, but we haven't gotten a lot about other groups, either African Americans who remained within the, what became the United States or members of the white community and things like that. I think that this is a really open and interesting question that we sort of really need to take the second half of the 1780s seriously if we're going to seek to answer. Right. I'd like to go back to what Ken said about the Constitution. It's probably no surprise if I say that I'm sympathetic to the argument of leaving the Constitution outside the confines of the revolutionary narrative. It does raise the question of what is the relationship between the 1780s and the revolution. Is the 1780s and state constitution-making process part of the revolution, or is it an effect of the revolution? But I think that either way you answer that question, the Constitution remains outside of the narrative of the revolution itself. I mean, to me, the answer is simple in terms of Constitution-making. On a state level, it is part of the revolution. It's the first task that most states look to. And by and large, the process has, or at least the first stage of the process, has been completed by the mid-1780s. And then that allows us to shift the Constitution into the effects of the revolution, but look at the importance that revolutionary ideology, revolutionary practice, 
revolutionary institutions, the way that they actually shape the future of the early republic, whilst allowing us to keep the two questions distinct. That said, I recognise that, again, is a very American story, <laughs> you know, that is, and in some ways a very local story. Um, so I wonder if Eric in particular might have any thoughts on what we've just been talking about. Absolutely. Um, I think you guys make excellent points. Um, the only uh, point that I would make against it, and this is almost, I'm, I'm going to, sorry, make two points, and, and one is almost against myself. Uh, the one problem is when you talk about a very narrow uh, revolution, it seems implicit that we're only talking about the wartime experience. Now, I understand we're not talking about simply a history that revolves around military battles, but I would say that the very nature of focusing on such a narrow period that is within the the time frame of the fighting itself when, you know, in the midst of fighting, state constitutions are also being written, is that those those constitutions aren't written. So, I, I'd be hesitant to say that, oh, that, that sort of clearly defines those constitutions written in the midst of war when passions are high, uh, so clearly articulate the ideology or what the revolution was about. Um, and secondly, uh, you know, to, to, to capture you know, the, that thing that we historians love to capture change over time, um, it's important to see at various different times, and again, not, not, not necessarily radical, you know, decades and decades, but at, at, in the very modest scale of post-war, 1780s, um, and going to, going to the, the Constitution, then you really see, you know, the hammering out, the, the development of revolutionary ideology, first as a, as a reason to rebel and not declare independence, then to, to declare independence, and then after the, the declaring of independence, failing to, fa on the one hand, failing to, to articulate a, a national government, and then realizing that, you know, this revolution has implications for a new type of federal government. Um, so again, I, I think that uh, that even just a slightly broader sense that includes the Constitution um, would still capture some of the complexities of the development of revolutionary ideology. Thinking about our conversation that we've been having, I really want to sort of second Eric because I think that what the con the Constitution really should be the endpoint if we're going to talk about the age of the American Revolution in the context of the United States. I mean, because the the questions that are being asked once the Constitution is ratified are different. It just changes the context, and we are, I think, fully moving into consequences of the American Revolution, where the initial questions have been answered, and we either need to find new solutions or take the solutions that we've developed further in time. And I just, it's really, ha this discussion really is hammered home that the Constitution, I think, 1787, 1789, should be the end point for the immediate era of the American Revolution. Thanks very much, Roy, and thanks very much to Michael and Eric as well. I think that brings a nice, natural end to our discussion today. Um, if you want to read more of our writings, you can always look at our blog, which can be found at www.earlyamericanists.com. And if you have any feedback for us, um, please email us at thejuntoblog at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.